CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is sponsored by Zengo. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey there. Happy Friday and welcome to Coindesk TV. You are watching The Hash. I am Zach Seward. That's Adam Levine. We got Jen Sanasi and Danny Nelson. We got a lot to get to. Big story broke overnight. We're going to toss to Danny for the latest on a big old bridge exploit over in Binance Smart Chain land. Danny, take it away. Yes, the Binance Smart Chain ecosystem that I've learned so much about over the last 12 hours had a pretty big kerfuffle uh, last night, New York time, when a hacker was able to basically trick the Binance, the BSC or BNB or whatever it is, the token hub that helps move money through the Binance ecosystem, hacked that, created 2 million fake tokens or created 2 million tokens that shouldn't have existed, uh, worth about $570 million, and then began trying to move that money out of the Binance blockchain's ecosystem onto other chains where that money could, you know, go do crypto things. So the the hacker appears to have gotten $100 million in value out. And this this attack was so severe that it caused the unthinkable they pushed the button, they they stopped the chain. According to Binance Smart Chain's backers, there was a coordinated shutdown of the blockchain uh, in conjunction with the validators. This is something that is very rarely seen in crypto, this idea that you can just take a blockchain offline. It's kind of anathema to the whole idea of a decentralized ecosystem. Proponents of this move will say, well, you know, it, it can still be decent. There can still be coordination in a decentralized ecosystem. Well, I was talking to one person within the Binance ecosystem, and even they were surprised at the speed with which this thing was able to be taken offline. So uh, take that however you may. But this attack was so severe that it caused, um, it caused the backers to push the big red button to take it offline until they could figure out what the hell was going on. So, uh, Zach, what do you think of all this? Is this, a, is this a, the shape, sign of things to come? for the uh, crypto ecosystem to see Binance taking this, the Binance Smart Chain taking this rather dramatic step? It's definitely battle testing. Let's put it that way. You know, you get the, you get the bank robber in the vault 
in the in the big vault with a big door and they mint you know something like 560 million dollars in tokens uh somehow through the magics of magic of smart contract hacking and then as danny mentioned right he was able to escape with that of uh, something like north of 100 million of those newly created funds right so in basic terms that's what's happening the decentralization question super interesting and i want to toss it to adam for that in a moment I think the bigger picture for me is that, again, like cross-chain security continues to be a big old pain point for the crypto ecosystem more broadly, right? This is the problem that users are facing, right? They have money in, in BNB chain. They want to get to Ethereum land. You got to have something that connects them. We call them bridges. But bridges to date have been pretty easily, not easily, have been especially vulnerable to big ticket exploits, such as the one that we saw last night. So I think cross-chain security remains a really thorny issue that these networks and these builders are going to have to continue to think about for the foreseeable future. So for me, that's probably the thing that I drew from it. But certainly the question of pausing the chain is really interesting and speaks to some of the core values of decentralization. So I'm going to toss to Adam for some of those thoughts. Yeah, so I think you're totally right on, Zach. Like As far as this stuff goes, the weak point is the cross sort of chain links. Blockchains, by their nature, are incredibly secure under most circumstances. But one of the circumstances where they're not secure and one of the weaknesses with them, you could argue, is that they don't know what's going on on any other blockchain. They only know what's going on on their blockchain, which means that there's inherently this kind of weak link place right between when you're trying to transfer an asset from one place to another, because maybe everything's going great and it works fine. But in those times when it doesn't work fine, well, maybe the asset arrives over there. Maybe someone figures out how to get assets off of a thing that they didn't actually have the rights to. And that kind of leads to all these problems. So I think the reason why we hear about it a lot uh, is because in a very secure system, which blockchains typically are, these are the weak points. And so if you're going to attack a system, then you're going to attack the weakest parts. And so we see that kind of over and over again. The amounts of money that are stored in these systems, that's really, I think, what makes them so attractive. You know, we used to call kind of the um, like the early uh, web-based wallet days back before people had their own private keys and they were just, you know, keeping them in an application. I used to call those things essentially pinatas because essentially to the more that you kind of filled them up with good stuff, then the more than there was an incentive to just bash them open and pull all of kind of the goodies out. And that's kind of what we see today with bridges. Now, on the coordination question, you know, it's interesting to look back at even the most decentralized chains out there. And you can see examples from the early history of Bitcoin where there was coordination as well. Um, when there were specifically, there was one notable bug that was found in the very early days that involved, you know, like phone calls being made to kind of the, the major miners who were out there in the major mining pools and coordination around trying to fix that problem. That was a bug, not a hack. But you can also, or an attack, again, hack is kind of a weird term these days. But you can also think back to kind of the early days of Ethereum and the DAO uh, attack or compromise, where a significant portion, proportion of the early sort of Bitcoin, especially from some of the most important people, sorry, not Bitcoin, but Ethereum, uh, but especially some of the most important people in Ethereum had a lot of funds in what was the first sort of instance of a, hey, this is a token fundraising vehicle type of thing. And that actually involved the splitting of the blockchain and the creation of an entirely new chain uh, called Ethereum Classic. And so I think that it's in contrast to that, right? It's like, if you want to fix these things, is it better to do it in a way that respects full decentralization, but which creates this legacy that lasts forever in the form of a different blockchain? Or is it better to have this type of coordination mechanism? I don't really know the answer to that. I think the market will tell us over time, but I think that that's one of the important questions. 
And this is just another approach to trying to solve these problems because people want to solve these problems. Nobody wants to have systems where it's like, hey, you know, I had $200 million here, you know, spread, spread across hundreds of thousands of people. And now we don't have that money and we have no recourse to get it back. So I think it's understandable arguments on all sides, but it's definitely something that will remain, I think, an open question just until we just see the space mature and some of these problems get a little bit better. Jen, I'll toss down to you. What do you think? Yeah, I looked at this story from a marketing angle, surprise, surprise. And I thought it was really interesting how BNB used kind of this opportunity to talk about some, some of the things that they were going to do, you know, as a result of the attack. Attack news is often so negative. And so that's why I kind of focused on this aspect of the story. I thought it was really interesting that they highlighted their governance model. So the fact that they're going to go to the community and the community is going to vote on what to do with these tokens that have been frozen. I thought that was really interesting. And then they used this opportunity to talk about the fact that the community is going to vote on whether or not they should release a bounty to catch hackers. And they also have plans for a $1 million bug bounty. And I, I think that, you know, we can look at this story and, and look at the, <laughs> I hate to talk about a hack, uh, an attack like this. Look at the earned media you get when there is an attack. Everyone is talking about it because there are so many nuances, so many things, problems to solve in this industry. And I think that from a marketing perspective, we can look at the story and take a little lesson. It's also an opportunity to talk about what else you got going on. Was that the, was that the, any news is good news take from the $560 million bridge exploit? Because it, it leads, it, it reads. Wow, that was really something. I mean, I guess the question when we're talking about sums this large, who did it? We saw this with the Ronin hack, which is associated with Axie Infinity. I forget when exactly that was. That was later alleged to be the work of North Korean hackers, the Lazarus, Lazarus Group. So maybe do we think that this is the same group up to some new shenanigans. I don't know, Danny, if there's any research or reporting that's on that front, but what's your thought of who might be, uh, who might be behind this one? Well, so I, I mean, I, I have no, it's way too early to tell, but I have put out a Twitter poll with um, four options as to who did it. <laughs> option one is uh, North Korea. Option two is uh, the country above South Korea. Option three is uh, Dennis Rodman's vacation spot. And option four is some guy named Igor. Some guy named Igor is in the lead. But um, the many amalgamations of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea um, altogether would still have the lead. Time will tell. I'm sure Chainalysis, I'm sure Chainalysis or TRM Labs or some of those crypto sleuthing firms are going to be hot on the trail of these funds. Uh, that they exist on public blockchain networks always makes it fun to track. Zengo Crypto Wallet is an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which until now has only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. Zengo is the most secure Web3 wallet and the best place to keep your digital currency, NFTs, and assets secure. It's also fully recoverable using the wallet's biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com slash hash and use code hash to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Coindesk's Women Who Web 3 podcast, your weekly podcast celebrating women supporting women, investing in women, and bridging the gender gap in wealth through Web3. Each week, we'll be learning from powerful women sharing their insights on topics like creating belonging and inclusivity in the digital spaces, 
the metaverse, building prosperous Web3 projects, investing in cryptocurrencies and building wealth. And we have how-tos from founders and builders who have been there and done that, healing sessions to give you the power to overcome imposter syndrome and everything you need to level up in your crypto journey. At the end of each podcast, stick around for some Zen with a relaxing meditation to center you after absorbing all the stories and the knowledge. I'm your host, Cams, and I'm on a mission to empower women across the globe to unlock the unlimited potential and earning power inside themselves through Web3. Whether you're just crypto curious or a crypto connoisseur, this podcast is for you. Let's get it. All right, I think we're going to change gears. The next story of the day, Jen, I think you have something from the world of FTX and Visa. What's up? Yeah, FTX has partnered with Visa to roll out crypto debit cards across 40 countries. So as a result of the news, FTX's token FTT surged 7%. The partnership is going to focus on Latin America, Europe, and Asia, according to a CNBC report, with CEO Sam Bankman-Fried telling the media outlet that crypto debit cards can disrupt traditional payment networks. I think it's interesting that they're focusing on every area outside of North America. But Adam, I'm going to pass this off to you first to get your thoughts. So first off, the word kind of partnership always jumps out at you. seems like there's probably more credibility here than there is with a lot of the partnerships that you see in the world of crypto. But it's just worth noting that uh, sometimes what one company says is a partnership is not actually so much a partnership so much as a standard commercial relationship. So it's worth kind of pointing that out. You know, I really question the ability of these types of things to, uh, to have a disruptive effect, really. I think that for people who have a lot of crypto and who would rather not sell it until the kind of minute that they are going to actually spend it, it presents an, a useful solution for them. Will it actually disrupt the kind of way that things work? Well, I think it's hard to disrupt the existing kind of credit card system when you're using the existing kind of credit card system as the means to make this disruptive <laughs> type of thing happen. I just, I just don't really get it. Like, I see why, again, like in, in a lot of places, um, you know, when you're talking about outside the US, for example, what it means in practice is that you can store your funds in the form of cryptocurrency rather than, for example, a currency that goes up, you know, 80 percent uh, or loses 80 percent of its value over the course of you know, a year, as has happened in Turkey. So I definitely see um, like large opportunities for it in certain markets that have really messed up monetary fundamentals right now. But I think that as far as kind of like the rest of the world is concerned, you know, again, it's something that might be useful to people who have a lot of crypto and want to spend it in a kind of more conventional system. But I don't think it really presents much more than that, unless I'm miss, missing something fundamental. Uh, Danny, I'll toss down to you. What do you think here? Yeah, I mean, when these credit cards and debit cards and pieces of plastic can actually be used to deliver crypto from the from the spender to the merchant as crypto, I think that will be really cool, even if it's, well, especially if it's happening through a MasterCard or a Visa, because then we're seeing that there, these big payment companies are doing the work to have support on-chain settlement, however that may be. I'm pretty sure that this is not that, though. This is going to almost certainly be a situation where, you know, I go to a store, I swipe my debit card, Let's say I have Solana uh, in the background. Solana goes, it converts into dollars. The dollars settle with the merchant as dollars. So the merchant doesn't need to know or care what I'm paying with because the merchant gets dollars. Now, from a 
adoption standpoint, that's a lot more feasible than saying, I have a crypto credit card that will pay you in crypto and therefore will only be accepted by people who want to be paid in crypto. But from a moving the ball forward perspective, all it is, is all this debit card is going to be is like an instant cash out mechanism in your wallet, which is, I guess, handy if you really want to just spend your crypto out and about, but it's not that cool. And it's not really moving the ball forward or disrupting anything, at least not in my book. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm kind of bearish on, you know, crypto debit cards. We've seen them out for a while. The adoption isn't especially notable. I think the stuff that is notable is the stuff that is, you know, nice value adds, right? Say this is denominated in USDC or something, and there's some additional yield that you'd be able to get that is not going to be available to you through a traditional savings account, though that may be changing given the current macroeconomic condition. But it is, I think, it, unless there's some nice value additive thing, the idea of having a card for you to spend your crypto, be it through FTX, be it through coin, the Coinbase card, be it through any number of the competing alternatives out there in the market, hasn't really seen, to my knowledge, a ton of user uptick. There's still, especially in the US, a lot of issues around how you tax these purchases, right? Um, those implications are significant. And I think that's why we're seeing that this isn't being rolled out in North America, right? This is being rolled out elsewhere. So um, from the US perspective, especially, this has been a, a, a thing that's sort of been out there, but hasn't been especially embraced by the greater community, even among the crypto diehards. Jen, I saw your hand. Adam, I also saw yours. I'm going to sauce it to Jen, and then hopefully she'll sauce it to you. Yeah, I was a little excited about this story, guys. And because they said they're going to focus on the Latin American, American market. And it made me think about the Lemon Cash card, which Argentinians are, are using. I don't have the exact number, but every time I read about this Lemon Cash card, more and more Argentinians are using this because inflation is through the roof in Argentina. I think the last time I read, it was over 50% and people are able to hold on to a bit of their wealth in crypto and then go out and spend that crypto for everyday goods. And so I can see how this would be a benefit rather than a novel idea in in countries like that. And so I'm I'm excited that they're focusing on Latin America with this card and hopefully they can offer another sol solution and an alternative to, to Lemon Cash for the people down there in Latin America. Adam? Yeah. So one other final note, I suppose, for myself is that, you know, when you're looking at these types of, of vehicles, the question really does become about what is the currency that it's going to be denominated in. And, you know, we typically think of cryptocurrencies as cryptocurrencies, and we don't really think about them as stable coins. Stable coins are kind of like their own category. But I think that stable coins in the world today are going to become and are already becoming increasingly important parts of sort of how the world moves money and also how the world saves money. You know, uh, the inflation that we're talking about that's happening mostly outside of the US, although we do certainly have inflation here, you know, but comparably speaking, the US dollar is like the least worst option. <laughs> and so what we're seeing is that as sort of turmoil, uh, you know, from central banks doing all kinds of stuff, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the next segment, um, you know, as that sort of makes its way through economies around the world, we're seeing a lot of people taking money that they would be holding in their local currency and moving it into U.S. dollars, which means that even as we're seeing inflation domestically, um, that is significant, you know, at record high levels, we are still seeing the value of the U.S. dollar from an international perspective reach heights that it hasn't in many, many years. And we're also seeing many other currencies that have historically traded at values greater than the U.S. dollar approach parity or even dip below them for, in some cases, the first time in history. So again, all of that suggests that you know, the volatility that people always talk about in cryptocurrency, 
like cryptocurrency represents an escape valve for people who are looking to have something other than their domestic currency. And if these types of payment mechanisms, especially if they can be stored in US dollar denominated tokens like USDC or Tether, um, you know, those seem like that is really providing a meaningful function. Now, the question I think becomes, well, at a certain point, once you get to a certain level of instability, do these systems even work anymore, right? Like, does, does the credit card infrastructure in the country still function on a reliable basis? Because if that's not true, then, well, you kind of might as well use a, dis a distributed wallet application, right, uh, to do essentially the same thing. But these are all least worst options, unfortunately. And just in general, it's a real rough time to be doing any of this stuff. So I think that anything that can help towards those does represent a net positive. And then my final comment is that this also represents the one more step down the road to boring that I like to talk about on this show and every other show, which is where cryptocurrency is just not exciting anymore in the way that it was five years ago when it was new and it was scary. And now we're talking about, you know, Visa and MasterCard, you know, and countries around the world and, you know, like countries adopting stuff and like all kinds of crazy stuff like that, that again, if you asked a traditional economist five years ago, they would have said, no, none of that will ever happen. And yet it has, and it is. Anybody have final comments on this one before we move on? Road to boring. Love it. After that, what will all the crypto people do? That's the big question. Eternal will life science. Will we still science, have a job? Crazy, weird frontiers of biohacking. What will be the next exciting thing? <laughs> it's for you to decide. Drop it in the comments. Anyway, just kidding. Adam, you have the next story of the day. It's going to close us out. What do you got? Yeah, so finally, new official statistics out this morning show a stronger than expected jobs number in the U.S. and an official unemployment rate that's actually the best it's been in quite some time, down to 3.5% in September from expectations that it would remain at 3.7%. But what's good news for markets, uh, for workers, though, is bad news for risk assets as modern markets, long addicted to central bank intervention, typically these days view good economic news as bad news for traders. That's because if things really get bad, they reason, the U.S. central bank will reverse its course and return to the easy money policies that kept markets on the upswing, even as much of the global economy was shut down over the last few years. And that is, in fact, actually what we saw within just the last few weeks, as the Bank of England abruptly reversed a similar policy of so-called quantitative tightening before it had even really started it, essentially bailing out pension funds who found themselves near insolvency as their risk models failed thanks to changes out of the central bank. Zach, it feels like we've had this conversation before. Is this just our lives now at this point? Just uh, you know, reporting economic news and being like, this isn't bad enough. It's not bad enough for markets to turn around. The road to boring. It is pretty weird. It is pretty weird that like, you know, the crypto world is so closely attuned to these macroeconomic pronouncements, right? This is like, you know, the jobs report is like as closely watched among, you know, crypto Twitter as it is like on FinTwit or whatever they call it over there. I don't know, global macroeconomic <laughs> Twitter, e economist Twitter. But uh, yeah, the idea that uh, the, it really kind of brings into focus that the idea that crypto is this alternate world or this alternate reality is not really grounded in any fact. It's very much a part of the reality of this macroeconomic reality in which we find ourselves, be it crypto, be it tech stocks, be it other assets that saw a great run up when money was being printed fairly liberally. So the idea that uh, you know Bitcoin has responded in turn to uh, some pretty positive jobs numbers is not to be unexpected. We should be expecting that. We've seen that time and time again that Bitcoin is trading more 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 sophisticatedly and more linked to uh, existing macroeconomic macroeconomic factors than it had been in the past. Right? You get more sophisticated traders, and they treat this asset like they would any other risky asset, and so you see some of this action on the price chart. I don't know if that's to be. Uh, mourned or to be celebrated, or if it's something that we 
should, I don't know, care about one way or the other. But it really is the reality of the crypto markets here in 2022 and even in 2021 and 2020 when it reached sort of a critical mass of being a thing that would be traded by sophisticated traders who are acting in response to policy pronouncements from major countries. So that's what I see here. I don't know beyond that. I don't know. But that's just sort of my gut about what this story might really be all about. But Jen, I'm sure you have something to add. Yeah, Adam, I'm always so happy when you're on the show because I learned so much for you. So while I'm still trying to wrap my head around what these numbers mean, I want to bring a little tweet from Wendy O into the show because she's not here today. She did a survey on Twitter this morning asking her friends and followers, do you believe the job report data? And 68% said no. Tell me why people aren't believing this data and who do we believe? Mm, I love this question. Uh, so there's a couple of different things going on here. First off, just recently, again, over the last couple of months, we've seen significant revisions to this data, which is another way of saying that the initial data that we talk about on this show is typically wrong in hindsight. And we'll get significant revisions to really any sort of official numbers that come out, which tend to make them be very different than what we're talking about today. So these are numbers that are supposed to kind of guide our view of reality and they do guide our view of reality. And so if they're wrong, and then we talk about them when they're wrong, and then they turn out to be different later, then that means that we've been misled about what reality is actually showing us. And that's really important because we make decisions based on what we think is going on in reality, right? So that's kind of one side of it is just that these numbers aren't trustworthy. Uh, and they prove over and over again to be wrong. And the other thing is that all of the agencies that we're talking about here, they're all part of the government. And the government gets measured in terms of their effectiveness by how well they're doing by certain metrics that people judge them by. And these are numbers that they get judged by. So it won't surprise me at all if we find out after the election that actually these numbers were a lot worse than people thought. And had they come out you know, with the correct numbers or what they say will be the correct numbers you know, at whatever point they revised them, that actually today would have been an up day for risk assets, but it would have been a down day for, the, for sort of the political uh, status quo because it would demonstrate that actually damage is being done here to the economy, which is what we know. It's also worth noting also that, again, markets right now are kind of obsessed with the idea that, well, we need the jobs market is the part of the industry that's strong, right? The part of the economy that's strong right now. And so it needs to come down in order for central banks to reverse what they're doing. Well, there's another argument here too, which is that, Central banks, when they do these hiking cycles, when they raise interest rates, especially aggressively as they're doing now, it takes a long time for that to make its way through the economy. So people are expecting, oh, hey, interest rates went up 0.75% last month. So that will have an impact on you know, sort of jobs this month. That's not typically how it happens. In something like seven out of the eight last uh, hike cycles, that is what we're going through right now, uh, going back to the 1970s, more than a year later, uh, you know, the jobs market was still tighter than people expected it to be. And was actually in a better situation because, again, these hard times force people into taking jobs that they might not otherwise take. And they kind of, uh, it takes a long time for, you know, this is, it, this is not like a, a sailboat, right? We're not like spinning around, you know, quickly because we want to make a turn. This is a cruise ship, right? Like it has momentum behind it. It needs to make very, very wide turns. And so that's another big concern right now is that the Fed is using these very short-term metrics to determine whether they should or whether they shouldn't suddenly kind of change course. But a lot of the stuff that they're doing, we're not going to see materialize in the economy for probably another year. So it's a bad way to make these decisions. And again, this is from people who have a track record of not doing very well at this stuff at all. So there's not a lot of trust on my side either. And it's a, you know, not a great situation. But anyways, Danny, let's go to you. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just naive. I don't. I guess I don't have. Uh, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to believe that the the Bureau of Labor Statistics is doing a best effort to get the right the real numbers out there, and that it's not a partisan um, endeavor. You know, I, I don't know anything. I'm just a guy wearing a Charles Hoskinson jacket on internet TV. So you you shouldn't listen to me <laughs> and, uh, on any of this stuff, to be quite honest. But um, uh, I would say I would agree with Zach. Like this is really a, just another sign of you know the evolution of the Bitcoin markets. Right? We are now in a place where Bitcoin, where, where we have traders who follow who trade this risk asset based on macroeconomic environments, and it's not just you could say the quasi-religious crowd of hodlers anymore and it hasn't been for years so that because of that because of the participation this broad macro participation you know this is what bitcoin reacts to and that's just it's not it's neither good nor bad it's just sort of a reality of a maturing uh, investment market all right i was just dreaming about sailboats ever since adam said that thing about sailboats i wish i was on a sailboat right now (laughs) we're not on a sailboat seriously the hash cruise ship not on a boat Hash cruise. All right. One one day we'll offer the hash cruise. We'll get a hash cruise going. It's going to be amazing. All right. The hash, live from a sailboat. Not this weekend, unfortunately, but we will leave it there. We'll be back to you guys on Monday. We hope you all have a great weekend as well. Maybe you can get on the water. Who knows? Depending on where you are, might be nice. All right. That's it. I'm Zach. That's Adam, Jen, Danny. We're the hash today. We'll be back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Check us out on the Coindesk Podcast Network. You can hear us, Adam, and other great content over there all the dang time. So check that out. We'll talk to you later. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. See you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, the hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.